Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called Onward, a study in the book of Acts. Together, we're learning how to live as an ordinary people, empowered to continue Jesus' mission. Thanks for listening. Well, if you ever want to embarrass a preacher, ask them about their first sermon. Very few of us want to remember the first time we stood up before an audience, and we hope they don't remember either. (laughs) I've shared before the first time I ever spoke in front of an audience. I was only 17 years old. My youth pastor asked me to speak in front of 200 other students in our area. And the night that when, when the night came when I was supposed to speak, they had to pull me out of a bathroom stall where I was puking my guts out, begging them not to make me go up there. They made me go up there, and I gave a 10-minute sermon on John 3.16 the whole time I was shaking and talking like this. But God used that in his glory. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is because this morning, as we continue our series called Onward in the book of Acts, we're going to be looking at the first sermon taught by someone other than Jesus in the New Testament, and he had nothing to be embarrassed about. In fact, it is a sermon worth studying for all of us, whether we're preachers or not, because as we're learning, we are all called to be witnesses of Jesus in this world, both through deed, but also through word. And this sermon gives us a clear idea of how we can do that in our own lives. In fact, here's the question I hope we can consider together this morning as we go through this text. If you're on your notes, what is the message we're to share as Jesus' witnesses? What is the message we share as Jesus' witnesses? And even more than that, how do we go about sharing it? Now, as a reminder, if you weren't here last week, after telling his disciples to wait for the gift that he promised him, Jesus ascends into heaven, and the disciples, 120 of them at the time, gather together in a room, and they begin to pray. And as they pray on what is known as the day of Pentecost, the gift comes, the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you weren't here last week, Luke explained it this way in Luke 2, verses 3 and 4. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Other languages. It was an incredible moment. These uneducated Galileans are now speaking foreign languages that they didn't know before. And this gathers a huge crowd of people who are completely amazed at what is happening and what they're hearing. Now, some of the people genuinely want to know what is going on, while other people dismiss it and say, well, they're just drunk. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. Peter stands up to give an explanation of this event, and it turns into the first gospel sermon ever preached. Now, one of the things I hope you see as we study Acts is while the day of Pentecost was an amazing and incredible miracle, I hope we realize it's not just about the fire, and it's not just about the wind, and it's not even just about being able to speak in other languages. What it really is about is that the disciples are now equipped, empowered, as we say here, to be Jesus' witnesses. The Holy Spirit doesn't come just to empower ourselves. He comes to empower us to continue Jesus' mission in this world. That's what we've been saying throughout this series, right? Acts is a book all about ordinary people just like us empowered to carry Jesus' mission in this world through word and deed. And we're going to look at one of the greatest words spoken in the New Testament together. So let me invite you to take your Bible and turn it to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. 
And if you don't have a Bible with you today, we always have Bibles in the seat underneath. We'd love for you to grab one of those. You can find this on page 883 of those black Bibles. I have a pretty simple outline for us today. We're going to walk through Peter's message together, and in it, we're going to discover the heart of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at how the crowd responds to this message, and then, like I said, I'd like to make some observations at the end about how we can still apply this message as we carry Jesus' mission into the world today. But all that being said, I'm going to give you a very strong warning right now. We're about to go to seminary class. I literally spent an entire semester looking at the things we're going to be talking about in Peter's sermon together. So I'm just telling you, buckle up, get ready, put your thinking caps on, because this is going to be some heavy, heavy stuff at first at least. But let's start by looking at verse 14 together of Acts 2. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you, this event of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pause here. The first thing we notice is that Peter begins his sermon by pointing back to the Old Testament and explaining what the Holy Spirit is all about. If you're following on your notes, the Holy Spirit's revealing shows that God's promise of salvation is being fulfilled right before your eyes. God's promise of salvation is being fulfilled. Well, what promise? Well, the promise that in the last days he would pour out his spirit on all kinds of people. Now, for the Jewish people hearing this, when they hear last days, they have something immediately that comes to their mind. They thought of it as a day of great victory and a day of great judgment. Every Jewish person was longing for this day because it would mark the restoration of Israel. They had been living under tyranny and captivity, foreign occupation for nearly 700 years at this point. And their hope, their prayer was that Messiah would come and restore them once again to the great nation that they had been in David's day. They referred to this as the day of the Lord in scripture, a day of judgment. We call it judgment day today. Now, if you recall, this is exactly what the disciples thought Jesus was going to do. Over and over again, they had this wrong idea of what the Messiah was going to bring. Even in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, look at what they asked him. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They're still thinking about their nation in a political kingdom. In fact, just a little graphic to show you what a typical Jew would have thought as the day of the Lord is. They would have thought, okay, we're living in the Old Testament era. The Holy Spirit would mark the, the, the ending of that era and the kingdom of God would come here on earth. Now, Peter is explaining something a little bit different. Here's what Peter says. The Old Testament era, then there's going to be an interim era, and the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all people, but it's just the beginning of the kingdom of God. 
Yes, the last day is still coming. The day of judgment is still on track. But as Joel says, he's giving us some time here. Some people call this the church era, where we become witnesses and bearers of the kingdom of God in this in-between time, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So now is the time, Joel says, for you to call on the name of the Lord before it's too late. But who is the Lord on whose name we must, be, we must call on to be saved from this day of judgment? Well, that's what Peter is going to go on to explain in great detail, starting in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now that word accredited is an interesting word there. It literally in Greek means to authenticate. To authenticate. Now I thought about how I could explain this, and in order to do so, I need to embarrass myself a little bit. But one of my favorite shows several years ago was called Antique Roadshow. Anybody ever watch this? I think I like it because of just the history that comes along with the show. But essentially, the whole idea is you bring a family heirloom to these experts, and they decide whether or not this is actually an authentic item. And you get to see people go like, wow, this is worth $10,000. Wow, this is worth nothing. (laughs) Right? So they authenticate whether something was genuine. And so what Peter is saying here is Jesus of Nazareth was obviously anointed by God to do what he did. His great signs and mighty works are proof. They authenticate his claim as Messiah. Now, all the people listening, as we see in that verse, would have known who Jesus was. They knew about his miracles. They knew about his wonders. They knew about his signs. Many of them actually hoped that he was indeed the Messiah because of these miracles. But instead, as we know, Jesus was put to death, death on a cross, thus for many of them disqualifying him as Messiah. But Peter is arguing no mere man could have done those things. In fact, Peter argues if you're following on your notes, Jesus' life and miracles authenticate him as the Messiah. You just need to look at his miracles and signs. It's proof he is Messiah. His life and actions reveal who he really was. But what about his crucifixion? The crowd would have been asking. Didn't that disqualify him? If not, why not? Read what Peter says in verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So not only did the crucifixion not disqualify Jesus as Messiah, if you're on your notes, the crucifixion was God's plan for redemption. This was God's plan for redemption. Everything had gone exactly according to God's plan. And yet, we notice, you can't help but notice, Peter doesn't let the people off the hook here either. Yes, it was all a part of God's plan, but Peter pulls no punches. Many of them, if not most of them in the audience that day, had demanded Jesus' crucifixion. They're the ones responsible for killing him. Now, this is such an interesting balance here between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, isn't it? It's truly one of the great mysteries of life. If you're doing the Bible study on Acts, you looked at some other passages that talk about this. On the one hand, we're told Jesus was delivered up according to God's plan and foreknowledge. 
Jesus' death was not a surprise to God. Jesus' death was not a surprise to Jesus. He told his disciples that it was coming. On the other hand, Peter's very direct about where human responsibility for his death lies. And I just want to pause here. Because right here is where this message, the gospel message, has to become personal for us. Because each of us must acknowledge the same thing. Each of us are responsible for the death of Jesus. We sang it in how deep the Father's love, right? It was because of my sin that he hung there. We are responsible for the death of Jesus through our selfishness, through looking out for ourselves, for my desire to live like God in my life. I have burnt others. I've exploited others. I've hurt others. I've damaged others for my personal gain. Worse than that, I have resisted God in my life as the rightful king and rightful ruler. And what Peter says, that is why Jesus came. That is why he had to be crucified, to do for me what I could not do for myself, to fix me, to redeem me, to bring me back into what I was created to be, in an intimate fellowship relationship with the God of the universe, who is not only the judge, but he's also my father. And that's how we were originally designed to live. Only Christ's crucifixion could make me right with God. We were created to be in relationship with him, but our sin has separated us from that relationship. And so what does God do? In his love, he sends his one-of-a-kind son, the perfect man, to do what we could not do, to live the life I owe to God, a perfect life of obedience, to suffer the punishment that I deserve to suffer on a cross. So right here is a moment of truth for you. Whenever you hear the gospel, there has to be a recognition at some point in your life when you realize it was my sin that put him there. It was my sin that put him there. This is what John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, is really describing. For God so loved the world, insert your own name there. For God so loved me, he so loved me, that he sent his one and only son. And whoever believes in him, who believes in his crucifixion, and what it accomplished shall not perish, but have eternal life. The cross was God's plan for our redemption. Thanks be to God. Next, Peter makes his most audacious and radical statement yet. I'd argue this is the most audacious statement made in human history. Would you read verse 24 out loud on your notes with me there? It says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What claim is he saying? He's saying, Jesus isn't dead. He's alive and well right now. But Peter doesn't just make this audacious claim. He goes back to the Old Testament to validate this claim. He quotes from Psalm 16 this time, starting in verse 25 of Acts. David said about him, about Messiah, about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now Peter speaks, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. 
Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Peter quotes from Psalm 16, where David says, God's holy one will not see decay. And then basically Peter says, listen, we all know where David's tomb is. We all know that he died, and you could dig up his bones right now if you so choose. Therefore, David could not have been possibly talking about himself in this psalm. He's talking about the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, descendant of David, who was God. But God did not abandon to death. He did not allow his body to see decay. He wasn't just resuscitated. He was resurrected. And he's alive and well still to this day. We witnessed it ourselves. We saw him. We experienced life with him. We ate with him. He is alive. So if you're following, the resurrection verifies Jesus is victorious over sin and death. Peter now brings his argument to the present day. The people want to know what's happening. Why, is, why are you speaking in tongues? What is going on? How did the Holy Spirit come? So he explains it starting in verse 13, 33. Excuse me. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, and now he points to the most famous messianic text in the entire Old Testament. In fact, it's the most quoted text in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Once again, we know that David can't possibly be talking about himself here. To use the title Lord is the title for God. And so God is saying to God, sit at my right hand until I give you your final victory. This could be no one else than a divine Messiah the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ at the right hand of God in all power and all authority. The Messiah wasn't just gonna be a mere man, David understood. He was to be more than that. He was to be the God man, the one the Father would exalt above every other name in heaven and earth, the one the Father would invite to sit at his right hand in glory and authority where one day he will indeed come again and destroy all of his enemies on the day of the Lord. So listen, Peter is making three points to his audience here. Number one, because Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, it vindicates every claim he ever made. Number two, Jesus serves as the active figure in salvation, is now the mediator of God's blessing. That is why you're experiencing the coming of the Holy Spirit right now. Joel prophesied this would happen. And then number three, this is an explanation for what you're experiencing. The coming of the Holy Spirit is proof that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Lord, the one Joel prophesied about, the one David prophesied about, the one the entire Old Testament points to as the one who will come and fulfill all God's promises. And so if you're following, Jesus' ascension reveals he now holds all power and authority. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. In fact, here's how Peter sums up his entire sermon. Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
based on the proofs of scripture and the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' resurrection, you should be ready to accept the fact of his identity. If you're on your notes, Jesus is the promised Lord and Messiah who brings salvation. Now, before we look at how the crowd responds to this message, let me just pause here and make an important point. We just covered in 20 minutes what I spent an entire semester in seminary learning about. It's called the doctrine of Christology or the doctrine of Christ. Scholars have written thousands and thousands and thousands of pages on who Christ is and what he accomplished, and we've just brushed the surface. But here's what I at least hope you understand. What we just talked about is known as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Those five points I have on your note, you would do well to remember those in your own words whenever you're asked to share this with others, right? We just remember, who is Jesus? Oh, Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire story of the Old Testament. Jesus' life and his miracles authenticated his claims. No human being could have done those things. Jesus' crucifixion was always a part of God's plan for you, for your sin, and to, to, for your death. Jesus' resurrection proves that he is victorious. He is the conquering king, and his ascension shows he now sits in all power and authority as king of the universe. If you remember those five things, you're well on your way to sharing the gospel with others. Don't memorize the way I said it. Don't memorize the notes. Just understand, those five things are the heart of the gospel. And we are all able to share that when given the opportunity. If you can remember those, you're on your way, and you did not have to spend three years in seminary like me. Now, as we come to the end of the text, what we see is truly incredible. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? If you're on your notes, the people are cut to the heart and ask what they must do. I can't even imagine what's going on in the mind of the crowd as they heard Peter's sermon. They had been waiting thousands of years for God's Messiah. Thousands more for God's deliverance and his salvation. And many of them right now are realizing that we are responsible for the death of our Messiah the king of the universe, the one I had been longing for, the bringer of the promises of God. Now they stand not as recipients of his salvation, but as enemies of God, as those who had resisted his kingdom. So they are, quote, cut to the heart. This is one of my favorite phrases in the entire Bible. I love it because that's exactly what happens to a person when they realize that they have rebelled against and rejected not just God, the cosmic judge of the universe, but your creator, the one who loves you, the one who wants you to experience good and joy. When you realize you have spit in the face of that amazing love, when you know it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross, that he died because of his great love for you to bring you into his kingdom where you could experience forgiveness of sin and life everlasting, that's when you know you've been cut to the heart. The expression describes what might be called conviction. Not condemnation, that is very different, and that is not from God, but conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's one of the greatest gifts the Holy Spirit gives to a follower of Jesus. 
In John 16, Jesus, preparing his disciples for their departure, said this about the Holy Spirit. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. I don't know if you think of conviction as a gift, but I've learned to think of it that way. Most days I do experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, sadly, because I'm still a sinner in need of grace. I might say something to my kids that I regret saying, and it's easy to walk away from that and ignore that, but then the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes into my life, telling me, make that right. Make that right. Don't let that keep going. Now, here's the truth. We can walk away from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then as time goes on, we will hear his voice less and less. But as we respond to that conviction, we are what is called now walking in the Spirit of God. It is a gift to us. In this case, the conviction of the Holy Spirit prompted the crowd's next question, what shall we do? Let's read Peter's response to that in verse 38 out loud. It says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He continues in verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter says the proper response to being cut to the heart is to repent and be baptized in the name of who? Jesus Christ. Notice he comes full circle from verse 21. What is the name we must cry out in order to be saved? It is the name of Jesus. Now what does it mean to repent? We've talked about this often here. In fact, very recently we talked about it, but just as a reminder, if you're on your notes, to repent means an ongoing and complete change of thinking and living. It's not just changing my mind, as some have reduced it to. It's actually changing my lifestyle, saying, I have been walking the wrong path. I've been walking a path of obedience. Now I am choosing, I am turning to walk the way of Jesus, to follow him, to follow what he says, to follow what he does. I'm going to let Jesus live his life through me now. Second thing Peter tells him is to be baptized. Now, I don't have time today, but I got to tell you, this verse right here has created so much controversy in the church. It has even caused church splits because some have taken this as a definitive pattern of salvation. Here's how salvation should always work. Repent, baptism, then you get the Holy Spirit. But that's a very dangerous way to think because you're actually going to see later in parts of Acts that people are saved in different orders at different times. For example, in Acts 10, the people repent the Holy Spirit comes upon them powerfully before we hear anything about their baptism. So were they saved before their baptism? Absolutely. In other words, it's not the act of baptism that saves a person. It is the attitude behind being baptized. It's repentance and faith. Is baptism commanded for someone who is to follow Jesus? Absolutely. Because it is to be a public act. It's to be a sign of entering into a covenant relationship with Jesus. It's like the Jews when they were circumcised. That's not what made them a part of the covenant community. It was a sign that they already were. So, repent and be baptized. 
Again, we could spend three more messages just on those two things, but we got to keep going. Now, what happens when somebody repents and is baptized? What does Peter say? Peter says you receive two gifts at that moment. You receive the gift of forgiveness, and more amazingly, you receive the indwelling of the very presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you're on your notes, we receive two gifts at salvation, forgiveness and the indwelling presence of God. Just understand this. At the moment of your salvation, the moment you're cut to the heart and you repent and believe, you are washed so clean that God takes up residence in your life. Paul describes this as our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is how pure you are made. God takes up indwelling residence in your lives. This was another semester of seminary right here. It's called the great exchange. Jesus exchanging my life for his life. Luke finishes this section with these words in verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. Peter's preaching produced astounding results. By the day's end, the church had grown from 120 to 3,120. And that's exactly what I'm expecting to happen today after this message. Now, in all seriousness, as we kind of wrap this up, here is the key question we need to consider today. Was that extraordinary response because Peter was such an amazing preacher? Or was Peter just an ordinary person empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue Jesus' mission in this world? I really think we believe the first sometimes. Well, he's an apostle. He's an amazing speaker. That possibly couldn't do, be something God would want to do through me. I think it's the latter, though. I think Peter was just an ordinary person, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to focus on today as we close. You know, we don't want to just learn about the Bible here. We want to apply the Bible to our daily lives. So as I asked in the beginning, what can we learn from this passage about what it would look like for us, ordinary people, empowered by the Spirit, to share his message with others today. So as I went back and I kind of looked at this text, I noticed five things I think we can apply to our lives as ordinary people sharing the gospel. Here we go. Number one, when we do this, keep it simple and practical. Keep it simple and practical. One of the things I love about this message is that Peter kept it simple and practical. The whole thing began with a question, right? What does this mean? Just pause button here. You want to know when the Holy Spirit may be prompting somebody? Whenever they ask you a question. If they ask you a question like, why don't you do that? Why do you live this way? Why do you believe that way? I will almost guarantee you 99 times out of 100, the Spirit is doing something in their heart. That is the opportunity we pray for and wait for, the opportunity to answer a question. Anyway, I'm sure we read this message today and thought, I don't think that was very simple. But understand, Peter's audience was different from our audience today. His message was given by a Jew to Jews on a Jewish holiday about the resurrection of the Jewish Messiah whom they had just crucified. His audience shared his culture and language so they could understand and they too knew the scriptures forward and backwards. And they experienced the event, the event he was describing. So listen, while the content of our message should be similar to what Peter shares here, 
the way we deliver it is going to be different depending on our context and our audience. Paul was the master of this, by the way. He said himself in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. He understood he would speak differently to different audience. He would become all things to all people. And we need to understand the same thing today. We need to meet people where they are. In other words, here's the big idea. Don't complicate the message. Don't think you've got to get every single thing right. You just need to relax. Keep it simple. Keep it practical. Maybe the best word I could use for you is keep it conversational. You're just meeting with somebody in your living living room talking about the greatest message ever. Number two, I noticed, keep it biblical. Keep it biblical. You can't help but notice how often Peter quotes scripture in this sermon, can you? What that shows me, and very important for me and for you, is that he didn't rely on his own insights, his man-made conclusions, his human perspectives, his human observations. He stood on the authority of divine truth. And he discovered something I hope you've discovered. God will always honor his word. God will always honor his word. But really important here, notice, how was he able to do that? Because he actually knew God's word. He actually knew God's word. So in applying that to my life, I've got to realize there's an intimate connection between experiencing the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and being filled with God's word at the same time. As I'm filling myself with God's word, hopefully daily, and I yield it in, to it in my life, I'm making myself available for the filling of the Holy Spirit. So to play it, say it plainly, to be an effective witness, we must know the word of God. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be quoting passages constantly whenever you're sharing this with somebody. All I'm saying is at some point, we got to know the foundations of the truths that we believe in order to effectively share them with others. And the only place to find that is in the word of God. Number three, keep it centered on Jesus. I hope you saw that at every possible point, Peter turns this sermon back to Jesus. I count at least six direct mentions of Jesus, and there are many other indirect mentions. This makes sense since this sermon was biblical, and the Bible is all about who? Jesus. Did you know this is exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do in us when we share? In John 15, 26, he tells his disciples... When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Sometimes we think the Holy Spirit is all about signs and wonders, and those things are great. But the surest way to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life is when you are declaring the name of Jesus. I'll remind you again, this is our message. Jesus is the entire fulfillment of the history of this world. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus proved it through his miracles and wonders. Jesus' crucifixion was the way that God opened us for us to be with him for eternity. Jesus' resurrection vindicated all of his claims and that defeated death and sin and his ascension proves he's the king of the universe. That's the message we share. It's all about Jesus. Fourth, Be courageous. Be courageous. As a reminder, Peter is speaking this in Jerusalem, and it was in Jerusalem that Jesus was crucified. So Peter was preaching to the very people who had called out, crucify him, crucify him. They had cause to be afraid, wouldn't you think? 
Yet they were not afraid. And the reason they're not afraid is the Holy Spirit is with them. It's amazing to me to think about this because just a few weeks earlier, Peter was denying with oaths and curses ever even knowing Jesus. Just days earlier, he and the others were cowering in an upper room, hiding from the religious authorities. But now that the Holy Spirit has come, look at the effect. In the same way, I hope you never forget this, that God can faithfully use your best efforts, even if your ability to share pales in comparison to others. Please don't believe the lie that I have to be a pro or an apologist or a public speaker to get the job done. Because listen, the pros don't live where you live. God's placed you there. The pros don't work where you work. God has placed you there. And so when the opportunities arise, be courageous and just give them the truth as you know it. Stumble through it the best you can, but get it out. And then model what you're saying you believe by the way you live. Be courageous because you can believe that you're empowered. Last, but certainly not least, related to number four, is trust the Holy Spirit to cut and call. Trust the Holy Spirit to cut and call. What do I mean by this? Well, as we saw at the end of Peter's message, two important things are mentioned. The first we already looked at is that people were, quote, cut to the heart. Again, was that because Peter's rhetorical skills were so amazing? No. It's because the Holy Spirit was at work in their lives. That's what the Holy Spirit does. I've seen this many times, anytime I've spoken, right? I have people come up to me after the service and say, did you have a camera in my home this week? Ah, nope. Why were you looking at me that entire message? I wasn't. That's called being cut to the heart. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's his gift to us. The other thing to notice is at the very end of verse 39, Peter says, this message is for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is so important. Salvation is and always will be God's work in a person's life. Paul reminds us of our work in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So listen, good news, pressure's off. You don't have to close the deal to be successful at sharing the gospel with others. That is God's job. Now, I'll just confess to you, I lose sight of this sometimes, and I get discouraged when I'm sharing, and there seems to be no results, so I have to come back to this again and again and again. I'm planting. I'm watering. God is the only one who can call somebody to himself. My job is not to save. My job is simply to witness. So, as we close, and I know that's a lot to take in today, Let's just close with this simple question that I want to leave you with. Will I trust the Holy Spirit to empower me, an ordinary person, as I share the gospel? Will you be courageous like Peter and take the opportunities that God gives you to be his witness? Will you pray with me? Father, we can't thank you enough that this is our message. It's a message of hope. That from the beginning, your plan was always centered on Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all scripture, of all history. His life and teaching and miracles are proof 
that his claims are true. They authenticate who he is. That his crucifixion is the way you have made it possible to be forgiven from sin and to life eternal. That his resurrection reveals that he is who he claimed to be. He is victorious in power and authority and he now sits at your right hand in glory. We give you praise for the name above every name. The name upon which everyone can be saved. It's the name of Jesus. To him we give all glory and praise and honor and thanks. And now we ask you, as those who have received that salvation, to fill us with your spirit. Empower us to be witnesses in this world, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities. Give us opportunities to share this message of hope with others the best that we can. And trust that as we plant and as we water, that you are making things grow. We pray this together as your church, who you have called and placed here at this time in history in this city. Fill us, Lord, for your sake. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.